Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Today, I'm really happy to have a colleague on my show. A comrade, if you will, another one. His name is Dylan Burns. You have probably heard of him. He's a streamer and um, a gonzo war journalist. Um, where have you guys heard that before? So, um, hello, Dylan, and welcome to one of the weirdest Eastern European news shows. Hope you're doing well. Happy to be here. It's a beautiful day outside. I'm uh, I'm in a green room right now at a, at a compound I stay at outside the Kiev Oblast, and I'm just looking out at the forests. Can't explore them because they're full of mines, but it's a very pretty day, which I'm happy to have. Yeah, I was planning to be at this point in Ukraine as well, but uh, German journalism students who are trying to fund their own thing are going through German government for funding and bureaucracy and all this stuff. And I hope that I finally get to go back again because you might understand me. Eventually you start missing being up there with the people that you actually communicate daily and stuff. So how is morale, basically? I, uh, I mean, when I came home, it was very strange because I got home. I was very excited to see my family. I was very happy to see my family. They missed me tremendously. They were worried about me. But then the whole time I was home, all I was thinking about is, damn, I want to go back. Oh, this is happening. This is happening. I should be there to film this. I should be there to take pictures of this. Uh, I very much believe that my work, I think the biggest contribution I want to make, I don't know if I'm necessarily making enough of a contribution to this fact, is Dr. Documenting history is documenting what's happening, documenting the perspectives of those experiencing the largest war in Europe since World War II. I think when we put it in that context, people better understand how historically important this is for not only the future of Ukraine, the future of Russia, but the future of Europe as a whole. And so every time that I'm gone, I feel like I'm not only missing out on an amazing opportunity to capture history, which is how I want to make my societal contribution, but I also just miss my friends. And it feels weird to know that my friends are back there, back in Ukraine, you know, going through all this. Many of them have been going through it for eight, nine years when nobody was paying attention to the war in the Donbass. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to be back. Uh, the feeling is lifted and I'm, and I'm back to work. You're on one of those shows that, well, I've been following what's happening there also for all these years as well. Started out as a Soviet history podcast, but we eventually started doing very frequent Russian news updates, when, um, especially when everything in Syria started happening. And uh, my first trip there was back in 2018. I, uh, I managed to smuggle myself in, in Donetsk at that point. I ate at the Donomak, which is the most ridiculous experience in my life. There is a feeling of mission, is, isn't there? It's kind of, like you said, very much feels like you're kind of betraying your friends by not being exactly there. Then again, each of us have our own way of coping. This is what I wanted to ask you, by the way, because what last time I was there, I was in Mikolaev over there in that region, and there were two Australian journalists who, who filmed everything, and they always kind of 
dressed up meticulously. They had high heels and proper makeup and everything. And then I just asked them, you know, it's a it's a war zone and isn't it pretty difficult and everything. And, and they told me that's kind of their tie to normalcy, I presume. I'm pretty sure you've you've seen them as well at some point. They, they're they're just living there because they would have to travel back. What's your tie with normalcy there in Ukraine? Oh my gosh, it certainly isn't clothing. See, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young guy. I'm 22, oh, well. right? Which is young for this career. I would I from interacting with people. I, I started this when I was 21. I was very young. Um, so I'm young. So I already wear a lot of sweatpants and like t-shirts. Definitely, when you add the fact that I'm a streamer, that means I'm more guaranteed to wear sweatpants and t-shirts. So a lot of times when I have this kind of like big scraggly beard that I have to deal with the Ukrainian cold, which I'm finally going to be able to shave off because of the winter, I sometimes look like a, a, a drifter hobo running around speaking a foreign tongue that most of the locals can't understand. But um, it certainly means that I'm not like that really intimidating. Or I guess it depends uh, if you're scared of dirty hobos. Um, it means that I... You know, I can interact with locals and stuff like that pretty easily. I, I hate being, they like how not formal it is. It can be intimidating to walk up to somebody in a suit and tie and, and you know, it's extremely formal and business style. I don't like that. And that's not how I tie myself to normalcy. Uh, for me, it's eating anything crab flavored. I've eaten crab flavored chips, anything that's crab related because it reminds me of my home. Are you from Maryland? I am from Maryland, yes. I noticed. Uh, a crab cakes is the best and I still miss Old Bay and you have the best flag ever. Okay, so you're a man of God. You're a good man. I have purchased your flag because that is the best state flag in the United States. It is the best flag. It's the best, not only the best state flag, but it is the best flag. I, I'm, I, would, I would consider myself a Pan-American nationalist. That's amazing because mm, as soon as you mentioned crabs, I, there was an instant giveaway. <laughs> yeah, but the, the crabs the crabs is a sense of normalcy. Um, yesterday, I did something for the first time in a very long time that I haven't done. I played a video game and I actually sat down and I played it for like hours. It was Red Dead Redemption 2, um, which that was a nice feeling of normalcy as well. And country music, which I did not have a huge fondness of before this war. I now have a much bigger fondness of because what's more American than country music? It brought me right back to the red, white, and blue. Oh, well, I think I think you kind of make sense. I'm a bit older than you. I'm 33 and born in the Soviet Union, <clears throat> which is Another one of those stupid things. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would call the Soviet Union a stupid thing. I would agree. I would agree with that. And I understand about the, the craggy beard. The first time when I was there, um, I went to to Odessa, and I drove from Latvia to. We flew to Hungary, and then from Budapest, we took a train, seventeen-hour train through Romania, and then on the small southern border post, entering Ukraine. There, uh, we were like thoroughly checked by border guards because there were only Ukrainian women going back to Odessa. In, in the early days of the war uh, for their supplies and everything. And there are like me and my friend Calvis and we're there wearing, you know, with, with our armored vests and our bags and everything. It looked, it looked very, very interesting and weird, but um, bizarre situation there. But at least, you know, I, I speak Russian fluently and Ukrainian, so the Ukrainian can understand at this point, but at least speaking Russian has helped me. You're dealing there only only in English, or do you have like local translators and everything, or or are you speak some Russian? Um, I I usually hire translators. The first time I was there, I was with two um, Polish people who um, fantastic people, great aid workers, a terrible terrible translators. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. Where I would go back and I would and I would look at the translations that they were doing, and they were able to like get me through, which I appreciate because they were doing the translation work for me for free. I was paying for everything else besides translation. And they were just like, oh, that's easy. We can do that for you. But I would look back at it and it was just Polish gibberish. It was just, it was just like a combination of like Polish, Russian and, and Ukrainian that turned into nothing. But they were able to get the basic idea across. Hmm. Uh, since then, um, I've 
been better to try to make sure I'm always with somebody that speaks fluent Russian, fluent Ukrainian. I can translate it a lot better, a lot easier for me. Uh, but even without the good translation, it's not terribly difficult to communicate with people. Um, you know, having like apps and uh, different like tools and little booklets on you is extremely helpful. And you can do a lot of nonverbal communication to get your point across or somebody to get their point across to you. Um, so a lot of times it's not even that difficult to to get my point across or, or talk to somebody. Mm. Um if I don't even have a translator, I just recently got back from filming in the Kharkiv Oblast, specifically around Balaklia. I was filming the demining operations around there to restore local power to the community because they had to remove all the IEDs and mines uh, that were around the local power lines. So they, you know, the local mechanics and electricians can you know, fix the power outage for a lot of the villages. But there's like hundreds of mines near the power lines, Mon 50s. Uh, uh, anti-tank mines, trip wires, like tied to grenades. And so they had to go through there and clear them. And some days, uh, because I was with them for about a month, I lived with them for a month. I demined with them for a month. I didn't do the demining myself, but I was with them very close to them. I tried to be as close as possible to get the best footage, which was often an issue because their job is to make sure that dumb Yankee doesn't explode. And my job is to get as close to exploding as possible because I need to film. I need to film them doing the demining. Um, but a lot of these days, I wouldn't even have a translator there because my translator would be busy doing work with somebody else or, or helping somebody else. Vlad Sokolov, fantastic, fantastic human being who's really committed himself to doing demining work in the country. Some days he would just be too busy to film with us or too busy to be there. And so we did a lot of nonverbal communication, Google Translate, whatever we could to get through. But um, I just wanted to almost in a way for those days, treat it like I was a National Geographic photographer, just seeing what it was like for them a casual day, casually demining, the expressions on their faces as they're getting ready to do this type of work, which is obviously extremely stressful, what their smoke breaks are like, what they talk about, what it's like when an explosion goes off. And a lot of times there'll be explosions that go off. You don't know about these explosions. You don't know exactly where they were. You Sometimes they're close enough that you feel them because these these areas are so covered in mines and a small rodent or a dog or something can set off some of these uh, anti-personnel mines, which are very dangerous. All these lipiochki, these little plastic things as well everywhere, I know. Yeah, yeah, the butterfly mines, the PMFM ones, uh, those things are extremely dangerous and they scatter from the missiles that they're dropped from and they look like little toys. They're just little plastic contraptions. They're extremely easy to set off. They're not even designed to kill you. They're designed to injure you. They were used heavily by the Soviets in Afghanistan. It butchered a lot of Afghan children, but a lot of these days I wouldn't need a translator because I just wanted to film what a casual day was like for them and i can get through the day either through google translate or you know nonverbal communication but most days i want a translator because i want to do sit down interviews and long conversations if, if i go next time and you're there uh i, I can volunteer to, to do that for you by the way <laughs> no probs because i'm used to at this point i'll use free latvian labor that sounds fine to me <laughs> oh no comrade we're used to we're used to aiding uh, aiding americans <laughs> No, but the, 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 of the mines, uh, recently we had we had a lazy on our show who was gathering funds for um, the demining whole charity thing, Mitzi Purdue, I think. And she's also going to go to that uh, demining... Oh, the Purdue family. She, she was on the show and she spoke about the whole demining operation and how, how that needed funding. And, and we did a little fundraising on that. But that whole mine thing that really stunned me because I was in um, Irpin just as it was liberated. And, and, and I saw the fact that, you know, the SWAT units were going in into each house. 
and you know in one of them you, you see this this mine it's kind of very stupid trap very obvious one and it kind of stunned like stunned me really bad when when i asked them well this is obvious like why would anyone explode on this and they said oh it's not for you it's for the kids and uh it hits you different at, at the beginning really hard i think i am um, a lot of the the charity work for ukraine is not governmental it's not mm-hmm. united states giving uh, ukraine a uh, charity work around specifically demining them giving them demining equipment um a lot of states actually consider giving demining equipment making themselves a participant of the war which is insane to me when you consider how much of a humanitarian issue this is the fact that this is going to be going on for the next 70 to 100 years the austrians uh, recently made an announcement that they would not be providing demining equipment to the Ukrainians, demining vehicles, because they're neutral, uh, almost as if uh, if they were to make sure that bombs didn't blow up in the in the homes of children or bombs didn't blow up in a farmer's field as he's trying to get back to his daily toil. Somehow that's taking the side of the Ukrainians to believe that their children should not be blown up by anti-personnel mines. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous position, but this means a large part falls upon NGOs, demining NGOs, and wealthy benefactors. Of course, there's individual contributions people can give here or there, charity events, but most of this seems to be uh, not a priority for the main supporters of Ukraine who could really help by financing a lot more demining vehicles. Some have, but there needs to be a lot more support. Definitely when it comes to the bigger ticket issues that cannot just be fundraised very easily like demining vehicles, which can cost millions of millions of dollars for really good equipment. Demining vehicles are not just retrofitted tractors. Uh, yeah, I believe Warren Buffett provided like four demining vehicles recently to Warren Buffett Foundation. So it's it's up to just you know the favor of the wealthy on whether or not they're going to protect local babushkas from being blown up by butterfly mines. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. These mines. I think people don't understand how serious this is because I was in Bosnia just as COVID began in 2020 there in Serbia when um, I think the first flight restrictions were lifted, but then they came back again. But I was in that window in Bosnia, and if you if you remember Bosnian war, the things there ended in 2001, I think, or 2003, don't remember exactly. But still, about 20 years later, they still have mines everywhere. They have zones where you can't go, and that was weird civil thing with way less technology used. This is going to be way worse, and I think people don't understand how big of an issue this whole problem is. That was scary. Another thing that really struck struck me as odd is. When I was with my Tang guys, because you know I want them, like I said in that Mikolai Oblast, Tang guys said that uh, wild animals are also a problem, especially wild cows. Farmers have left or or been exploded because a lot of them are just stubborn and won't leave. But then you have like wild animals also running around and mine situations where there's mines running around there. That's also a problem, which is just mines in general are, are just terrible. And that's something you, I, I think, I think you really have to explain. A lot of people out there in the West, because for me this worth personal. I've lost, I've lost already too many people that I know personally in this one. That's what I'm trying to do: provide some some empathy and some understanding about this whole suffering and everything that's going on. So when when I was trying to explain to people, for example, because you talked about this earlier, and I wanted to comment on it, like, oh, these minds are so stupid. Like it's so obvious, and a lot of them really are. Mm-hmm. And th- this in large part because uh, so many minds are being deployed by both the Ukrainians and the Russians. Uh, to defend territory and to hold territory, or sometimes even, and this is definitely an issue when it comes to the Russians, terrorize the civilians, which a lot of it, definitely the placing of mines in civilian homes, 
the homes of children, sometimes even toys being mined, that type of stuff. There's, there's no real strategic reason for it unless it's just to keep refugees displaced and to scare people from coming back to their homes. Um, but a lot of these amateurs are just going by the book that they have a manual that was given to them by the Russian Ministry of Defense, maybe made like 30 years ago. And so they're like, okay, this is how you set the mine. Okay, I'm just going to place it here because I was told I need to mine here. And then you move on to the next one. These are the people who have been sappers for the Russian military for a very short period of time. The better experts, the people who know what they're doing. I remember I talked to one D miner named Vlad who told me it's like an art form, which was very strange to hear it from somebody who's taken apart these mines since the mid 2010s, describing mine lane as an art form. And I asked him to expand on it. And he said, if you're a smart Russian sapper, what you're going to do, if you're, if you're creative, it's really going to help you. You go out there, you set it down, you set out the mine in a location that you think that would be the most beneficial for you. Uh, then you stand up and you look around. If this mine was to go off, where would people run to? Where would be the first place where they think they could get cover and hide? If you were to try to disable this from a distance, where would you be? If you uh, identified this mine, where would you hang out in order to uh, try to disable it from uh, using some other method? And so they're looking for other locations that people could wander off to once they've identified one mine. And that shows the type of creative and strategic thinking uh, that led that uh, my my buddy Vlad, the, the, the miner, and I've Vlad's over a lot of a different Vlad, uh, to describe mine lane as an art form. It's a it's a cat and mouse game where the uh, the miner, the the sapper, has to lay lay mines and lay booby traps and constantly think about how is the deminer, how is the Ukrainian emergency service worker going to see this mine and deal with this mine uh, in order to disable it so they can continue their advance or you know protect local civilians. It's a it's a it's an endless cat and mouse game. Sounds very scary, but it also kind of is. One thing that I want to ask you about your personal experience more is how fast did it take you to get used to the stress thing? Because I noticed that you get used to random stuff exploding near you very quickly and you kind of try to, you start taking it with um, some sort of stride or something. Because at the beginning, you know, first times I was scared about the air raid sirens and something, you know, rockets popping up nearby or, or those Shahid drones or whatever. But on day four, you're like, oh, wait, uh, it's, this stuff is going to explode in about 30 minutes. I'll better wait before I go to sleep or start try recording. Uh, it, it really stunned me how quickly humans can get used to such extreme situations. And that was also number one problem, by the way, which in Mikolaev district, the governor, Kim, told me in an interview that um, they had an issue where seven to eight-year-old kids just would disregard air raid alarms and just not even go to any shelter. They just continue playing their playground. It's one of the things that actually surprised me about the whole war, about how I personally also dealt with it. At one point, it just, at least for me, stopped being a nervous thing that I worried about, just some sort of weird calm switches in. Did you experience something similar, like for a more personal side? This war has left deep scars with a lot of people. Human beings are incredibly adaptive, but um, I want to make sure before I answer this question that people getting used to it or adapting to their environment. That's not a good thing, by the way. Yes, it's not. It's not a good thing that they have to experience it, and it still can leave deep scars. There's a lot of people who get used to war, get used to death, get used to destruction, but will still deal with PTSD and trauma the whole life. Um, I don't know if exactly the example I'm about to use. These people got used to a war, but just an example of this trauma. Uh, when I was in Poland before. I went to Ukraine for the first time to cover the war. I stopped by a, a Polish school, uh, a charter school that was being held up high by a headmistress who wanted to 
you know, brag about how great their school was because they were hosting refugees. They were, you know, really helping them and making sure that they had a a welcoming environment. And she would stress to me so heavily how uh, these refugees uh, were being welcomed by the Polish school children. There was no bullying because, of course, Poland and Ukraine has a very dicey history when it comes to, uh, you know, bigotry and hatred and, and killings and, you know, mass violence, basically lynchings against each other. Um, but during the end of the visit, she brought me outside to watch the children play. And when I was out there, I, uh, she said to me, the way that you can tell the difference between the Ukrainian school children and the Polish school children when it comes to trauma, because I had asked earlier about trauma, is that when these kids are playing out here, there will be airplanes that go over the playground uh, from the local plane station. That I was near Lublin at the time, which is a plane station very close to this um, uh, close to this. Uh, charter school. And when the plane goes over the playground, the Polish children continue playing. It's almost like nothing's happened. They're used to this. And the Ukrainian children will lay down on the floor because they have been taught that planes bring death. And when you're in Ukraine now, there are no planes that are not military planes. There are no civilian airliners. It's all military planes. So they were taught to be terrified of planes. And now that's something that's going to be with them forever. And so they might be used that type of death or destruction, but that trauma will be with them forever. And so in my time in Ukraine, I've gotten very used to it where I'll wake up, I'll see there's an air raid siren notification on my phone, there's an air raid, the rush to my bombers. I'm in the city and I'll hear the air raid siren and I don't run to shelter. I'm going to be very blunt. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm saying that's what I don't do. I understand you perfectly because uh, I have been to the same position there, so I, I get it. It's just, it's a thing. It's um, I do, I do want to clarify that if you know, if I start hearing explosions and stuff like that, of course I'll I'll go to shelter. If I'm with others and they're going to shelter, then I'll go with them. But if I just wake up and I look out my window and I see the sirens blaring and it's like eight a.m., I'm going back to sleep and nobody can stop me. I'm I'm tired. It happens sometimes three, five, six, seven times a day. Usually happens a ton during the week. It's multiple days that it's happening at that frequency. Definitely recently, I'm most likely going back to sleep. And uh, whether that's a good thing or not to say, um, that's the truth. And that's how the majority of Ukrainians react to it now. When I'm out at the restaurant and the air raid sirens blare um, at the start of the war, usually they would kick us out. Nowadays, most restaurants will just kind of, eh, they'll kind of skirt regulations. and They'll just wait for the air raid sirens to stop and then they'll serve you your steak. They'll serve you a meal. That's how it works. And uh, it's because most people have gotten used to it. Now, I want to make sure that us getting used to it doesn't lead to us taking such ridiculous risks that it can get us killed. Because that's how a lot of war reporters, that's how a lot of soldiers get killed, is they get so used to it that it becomes so casual that they have no feeling of fear. And so I got to remember uh, in these situations that, you know, you can still die at any point. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. 
Launched in 2014, the Comeback Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Well, I was in communication with a Georgian war journalist who went in to investigate Wagner in Central African Republic. It was back in 2019, and uh, yeah, he was shot there too. We have to remember, after all, that um, our profession is also not made for perfectly normal and sane people. I do have to admit that after the war ends, I've been I've, done, I've been just piling up the things that I've seen and things that probably have scarred me, and I'll, I'll need a lot of therapy after this, definitely. I'm pretty sure that you'll, you'll have to go get some too, I think. Half, half a month ago, a French journalist working with AFB was killed near yes. uh, Bakhmut by Russian grad rocket strikes. I mean, yeah, being a journalist in this war, in this war in particular, where there's not a lot of care made to protect journalists from the, especially the Russian side. Um, it's very uh, difficult to know exactly how you're supposed to skirt uh, these rules with how the Russians behave. Because in a normal war, press identification, while you can still get killed, certain militaries will respect that and will do their best to not kill journalists because even they know of the image it gives them. But I remember during the first time I went to the front line in Ukraine, um, I had a press badge on me and it was reflective and I was told specifically to take it off because it being reflective in a press badge could for some um, soldiers just be a bullseye, just be a unique target for them. That's how it was explained to me, whether the specific unit that could have seen me that day when I was on the Ukrainian position in Zaporozhye, the forward operating position, whether they would have or would not have, I have no clue. But there's certainly enough of a, a vile, toxic uh, culture uh, within the Russian armed forces that I believed it, and I took it off. Well, about the, this vile, toxic culture, yeah, I, I recently wrote an article for Foreign Policy magazine about the whole prison thing. I read it. It was really good. Thank you. I, I thought this was an aspect of, of what forms a lot of issues there in their military. Thank you that you liked it. What was the hardest part, you would say, about all this job? What's, what's the biggest difficulty? Because I don't know. For, for me, it's I always feel the responsibility when I um, report on this. And, and right now, by the way, while I'm not at the war front, I focus on whatever Girkin is saying and all the other pro-war Russia side. Because I think BBC and, and, and major news outlets kind of ignore that side, ignore these club of angry patriots. But I think they're going to be a political force in Russia afterwards. And Igor Girkin, Strelkov, as dumb and bizarrely politically misguided as he is, his tactical knowledge is quite sound so i use that and it's sometimes just hard to me to, to even like read these very pro war z materials after what i've seen and what i've dealt with 
it's just a weird, difficult thing because I've had people, you know, because of all the work that I do, I have tried hiring some people who know both Russian and English to help me transcribe their audio logs and then I could then translate them. And a lot of them have told me that they just don't want this stuff in their life and just quit on me. And that's understandable because that's rough stuff. And, you know, again, scars. What is the most difficult thing there that you've experienced? I lost my original editor uh, making this transition into war journalist content away from the more political commentary stuff that I first got known for online and campaign work, of course. Worked in the Democratic Party politics in Maryland for a bit. Very small stuff, but still. Um, when it comes to these like pro-Russian fanatics, like pro-war fanatics in Russia, I think the Western press does a gigantic disservice by not covering enough the type of wild stuff that is said on Russian state television, the type of insane ramblings about transgender NATO black soldiers uh, rushing the brave uh, Russian patriots. And the only reason Ukraine is still standing is because of uh, a NATO mercenary force, 30,000 strong. And, you know, the Ukrainian people don't truly exist. They're a little Russian. Like if this stuff was played, uh, just translated, not even with commentary on American television, people would realize how diluted the Russian information space is and how bloodthirsty the Russian government's messaging is, which would make it a lot easier, I think, for a lot of uh, Americans who ask when looking at Bakhmut or looking at the largest mass grave in Europe since the Yugoslav genocides in Izium, 440 bodies, when they ask, how is this possible? Uh, while there's many explanations, the narratives that are pumped out by the Russian government on the state television apparatus is one of the clearest explanations. Not only is it, you know, when you like force these soldiers to go into conditions where they don't have good ammunition, they don't have good equipment, they have bad ammo, they're constantly getting ambushed, especially, for example, during the Kiev operation when the Russians were getting ambushed constantly. Then you add that with hyper-nationalism and propaganda about the enemy, about how the enemy's all evil Nazis that need to be destroyed. And it's not that difficult to understand how like the Bucha massacre happens. And I think it would be a lot easier for people to understand the brutality of this war if they understood the narratives the Russian government was pumping out. Yeah, we do that on this show. This is what I've been doing on Peacetime a lot. And uh, to be honest, I really kind of hope that maybe, you know. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Collaborating with you is, is, is probably going to help my show reach a bit wider audience because I agree with you completely about these whole narratives and everything. And I'm the guy who does all the translating work of exactly this, this type of stuff. So, well, let's, let's hope this helps. So continue on. Thank you. As for what's most, um, most difficult um, for me, so I, I mean, there's like a psychological aspect to all of this, but I don't like to talk about it very much because of course. I don't feel like that's really what's important. At any point, I can leave this country. I chose to come here and there's 44 million who did not choose to be born in Ukraine and deal with the conditions that they're dealing with. Um, any amount of psychological issues that could come for this, I feel that is not nearly as serious as what it would be like to see your own villages burned down. It's it's really messed up to watch somebody else's village burn down, but it's not your village, it's not your town, it's not your city, it's not your community. No, no, I just wanted to add that for me, for me as a Latvian, um, we take it a lot more personally because I've heard also have relatives there and everything. So, Soviet Union, comrade, we we know here in the Baltics on that one. So that's a bit different here, I suppose. Oh, I suppose it would be. Um, for me personally, I think it's being away from my family and knowing the stress that this type of work puts my uh, grandmother and other family members through, my grandfather, and um, they did not expect me to go into this line of work. They didn't expect me to go into political work or journalism work whatsoever. They, they don't know where I caught this bug from, but um, my grandmother lost my mom uh, to you know drug addiction and um, uh, that was a really big loss for her. There's been a lot of problems with my family when it comes to loss, and so it terrifies her the idea of you know also losing me. And I and I understand that, and um, I hate that I put her through this. Well, understandable. Other thing that is here in my notes list, um, I, I hate that, but I can at least see where the Russian fanatics of, of the war come from. They've been they've been fed Putin's propaganda and. There's Igor Gerkin and all these stuff that's in the news and everything, but what I don't get, and you'll probably explain this because uh, you're from the United States, where do you think the people in the States who are pro-Russia somehow come from? Because I have honestly asked this to a lot of people because Russian TV and everything, they openly call the United States their enemy. And they openly state that the United States is evil and the Americans all, you know, are, are monsters or something. I don't get it because I'm a Latvian. And, and for us, you know, it's, over here in the Baltics, the feeling is that if you hadn't joined NATO, we would be in the place of Ukraine right now. Therefore, that is why we in the Baltics help Ukraine with everything we've got. But why would, why would anyone in the United States be pro-Putin at this point? I, I simply do not get it. it. It just goes against everything that I've been taught in school about Americans and, and your values and all this stuff. So maybe you can give me an explanation here. Uh, obviously, I can't answer for them personally, but I can tell you that I am working on a piece right now talking about pro-Russian Americans, Americans who support the invasion. And uh, while I was making this piece, I went to the Rage Against the War Machine rally in D.C., which was a war machine rally organized by the Mises Caucus, the Libertarian Party in the United States, and a bunch of other hodgepodge of mostly just fringe political organizations. There was about maybe like 3,000 people who went, if I was being extremely, extremely generous, and I counted everybody who went there, like locals who just passed by and kind of scoffed at the event. I'm, I'm being as generous as possible. And everybody that was there was extremely fringe in their political orientation, unless they were there just mostly to like, oh, I'm curious, or uh, oh, I'm just here to kind of watch the freak show, which was what I was there to do. Um, there were communists, 
there were fascists, as in just out and out white nationalists. For example, Matthew Heimbach, the former founder of the American Students Union, and I believe it was I believe he worked for PR for the American, literally worked in PR for the American Nazi Party. Um, and then they would be like right next to somebody flying like a Soviet flag, uh, somebody who would come out and say they're an ardent Marxist Leninist and they support the Russians for their crusade against the evil NATO imperialist dogs. And so on one hand, you can meet people there who support the Russian invasion because they believe that Vladimir Putin is a white man's warrior and he is crusading for Christendom in the modern age when the West has cuckolded itself to, you know, liberalism, democracy and the homos. Um, and then you'll find somebody else who's there because they want to fight against the evil NATOist Tigs, and the only true person fighting for the multipolar world order is the Russians. Now, this is actually a small, a very small group in American politics that believe this. I mean, single digits is is still overselling it. We're talking one percent maybe 2% of the American population who have in large part been radicalized online. Uh, the larger part where I think it has more sympathy uh, would be in the more anti-interventionist, libertarianish uh, movement. There are some progressives that find their way into this, but the Democratic Party and a lot of progressives have not as much been caught up. But the Libertarian Party and certain sections of the Republican Party have um, it, but their message is a lot easier and a, a lot more easier for a lot of Americans to accept, which is it's not our business. It's not our business over there. It's not our business to be involved in this. Uh, it's very sad, uh, but it's not our business. Now, this position will usually be supported by a lot of narratives pumped out by the more pro-Russian, fascist, hardcore Marxist-Leninist types, even though it's the idea of a Marxist-Leninist supporting current Russia with the high levels of corruption and an oligarchical system is, is hilarious, but um, they will still accept some narratives. If you watch a lot of the debates with high-profile libertarians on this issue, they will say things like America overthrew the Ukrainian government. This is a lie. They try to take this from like like $730,000 of NED funding. It's a ridiculous argument uh, that completely ignores the abuses of the Yanukovych regime and how it beat protesters, murdered protesters, tried to outlaw protesting, pulled out of the association agreement, which he promised he would be entering, as well as the Russians uh, infringing on the sovereignty of the Ukrainian people by trying to um, coerce them into not signing into an EU association agreement through just stopping all trade, all things that they promised they wouldn't do when they signed the Budapest Memorandum. All this history is ignored. And I think a lot of people just take the simple explanation of, oh, America's evil. And through the CIA, they did a coup of the, uh, the Ukrainian government. And that's a lot easier narrative to understand than trying to treat the Ukrainians as an autonomous force that can think for themselves. None of them know, even though many of them will reference the Victoria Nuland phone call, none of them really sit down and listen to it. Because if they did, they would know that Victoria Nuland and the American officials talking in that discussion uh, plainly said that they wanted the protesters, the Euromaidan protesters, to accept the offer made by the Yanukovych regime. But they didn't, which clearly shows that we didn't control them. If we wanted them to do things and they didn't do them, then it shows a lack of control. But these narratives will still seep into the, the edges of their arguments. And so this this general argument of disinterest is usually buttressed by arguments of, but you actually, it's our fault. Actually, you know, we overthrew the Ukrainian government. Or actually, I saw, for example, Tucker Carlson suggesting that we have, there's nuclear weapons in Ukraine, a complete lie. Actually, the Ukrainians are getting destroyed. For every one Russian that dies, seven Ukrainians die. Robert Kennedy Jr. and Tucker Carlson said this multiple times on his platform 
RFK has said this also on other platforms. Uh, these are all lies, but these lies seep in to the already kind of non-interventionist, uh, generally isolationist mindset of many of these libertarian types or isolationist types. And it makes them, at least in their minds, think they have a much stronger argument than they do. Still, it's a minority of Americans. But I think the biggest group of concern is that second group, not those who are explicitly pro-invasion or explicitly pro-Russia, but those who have been captured by their arguments. And many times, unknowingly, because these arguments are often made by not the Russian state itself, but by uh, attention whores on the internet, contrarians on the internet, who will go on Russian state TV, but will also go on American state TV. I mean, not, not American state TV, but American television networks or American uh, podcasts without ever mentioning uh, money they've taken from pro-Assad lobby groups or uh, their friendly relationship with the Kremlin. Today, I, I saw a tweet where Scott Ritter was on, 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 I think, RT or something. Yeah, the pedophile. One second, I just need to clarify. The pedophile, Scott Ritter. Yes. Of, of course, of course. He was just uh, invited there. Yes, he tried to he tried to diddle kids on three separate occasions, one of which he was convicted for and served three and a half years in prison for. Uh, he recently, during this trip, he said to Russian journalists that he was arrested for standing up for what he believed in. Um, well, maybe he really believes in pedophilia, which I guess means diddling. Yeah, he really believes in diddling kids. Uh, his, by the way, I don't know if you ever actually looked into the court disposition for uh, his case. I am a psychopath, and I actually looked into this stuff. Uh, his argument as for why he tried to message underage girls for sexual interactions, the reason why was that he was so bullied after he opposed the war in Iraq that he just he went out and he did it because he was just so depressed. So really, it was Dick Cheney that did all those girls. Okay. Uh, take a deep breath, Christopher. <laughs> it's one of those non sequitur moments, but it is kind of, kind of bizarre. For me, the weirdest thing when I first kind of contacted all this bizarre attitude was when... Um, on national Bolsheviks, you know, these nice people whom I think more more Americans should know about. The guy Strasserites. Yeah. And National Bolshevik Party. The same one where where they, you know, actively work with Girkin's group, you know, the Club of Angry Patriots. They gave criminal charges to me uh, to Latvian police by stating that people from Texas are gonna come over, listeners of mine, and shoot them. And then a month later, basically after writing explanations, it was the case was dropped, obviously. But I asked the cops about Hey, you know, has there been any, any more complaints? And, and they were like, well, um, yes, we called him and just asked the guy uh, who was under investigation from our own police, you know, has Kristaps called you? No. Emails? No, nothing, nothing. And, and are you truly afraid that, you know, he or his listeners are going to come over and shoot you? And he was like, yes, absolutely, 100%. So it's kind of funny how um, <laughs> they're actually pretty much cowardly, cowardly people. <laughs> so stupid. Are you, say, uh, are you saying that? When you offered off, you know, during the intermission we just had, that you would be willing to kill all of my political opposition, no questions asked. Was that a was that just a joke? <laughs> uh, not me, comrade. It's the nice man from the KGB. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's 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 fine. It's just that it's silly. It, that's also one of the weird claims. By the way, um, thing that which I did is that Girkin's Club of Angry Patriots, you know, his own new political movement, right? I have trademarked that and and their logos now both of them in the EU. So technically, Girkin is breaking my copyright law. Yeah, you should take him down. Somebody needs to stop him. Somebody needs to stop him. He's such a criminal. That's probably the worst thing he's done. <laughs> he's still with that. That's the thing. At one point, we also found out he hates the Dutch. He hates the dude. He hates the everyone, dude. He hates the Jews. He hates the Romani. He hates everybody. That's the whole thing. The, the pure hate factor. 
And I think this is where Putin has lost politically. This is also the reason why uh, I don't think he's going to use nuclear weapons too. Well, the question that I've been asked constantly is whether or not Putin is going to use nukes in this war. And I always say no. By his own propaganda, that would be nuking his own territory because, you know, he claims Ukraine is part of Russia. So if he nukes it, then that's kind of, you know, bad as he nukes his own land. And secondly, everyone, at least in the Russian blogosphere and everywhere there, even the pro-war guys think that would be a sign of weakness and it would allow the West to nuke everything. What do you think about whether or not Putin is going to go nuclear? I, I don't think he's going to nuke Ukraine. I don't even know if the like, oh, well, he doesn't want to hurt Ukraine. He calls it his own territory would matter much considering what he's done to Mariupol, what he what they've done to Bakhmut, what they've done to a lot of these cities. I don't think them respecting the environmental condition or, or humanitarian condition of Ukraine is going to be a major factor. I do think a lot of people symbolize uh, Russia's uh, decline from great power status, the fact that it couldn't use its traditional military force. It is now basically uh, reverting to terror tactics in order to try to take over the country by turning the entire globe into a big like suicide bombing uh, uh, crisis. Um, but I also think that there's a bigger issue when it comes to what would happen geopolitically after he pulled the trigger on this. The nuclear taboo exists for a reason. And every single country on the planet does not want it to go away outside of Kim Jong-un. So he's, that's the only people who would be happy at the news that they used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Think about it for just like a, anybody listening to this. Just think about, do you think the Indians would be happy to know that a nation can completely fail in their invasion on every level and just revert on nuclear terrorism to uh, blackmail the international community to give them victory. It didn't work in Afghanistan under the Soviets or under the Americans. It didn't work in Vietnam. It wouldn't work in Lebanon. It didn't work in a million different instances where nuclear power fought a non-nuclear power. And they didn't do it because it would be catastrophic for them. And it also probably won't work. Um, so I, I don't think the Indians would want to support the Russian economy with uh, with the purchasing of energy exports if they knew that they were propping up a power that's going to make it easier for, for example, the Pakistanis to use a nuclear device in their country. Uh, or, for example, the Chinese who have to keep the North Koreans on a leash for their relationship as a buffer between them and the American bases in South Vietnam to work. Uh, they don't want to embolden them and make them think that, oh, well, if we can't take South Korea through military force because our military is a sham, uh, maybe we can just threaten them with nukes enough or actually use a nuke and try to conquer the peninsula. Uh, there's a million reasons why a million different countries don't want the nuclear taboo to be broken. And so I find it hard to believe that Russia, even with the amount of like, we can sustain in ourselves patriotism that he can like, try to bring out of the people, the Russians cannot survive on their own, completely isolated outside of the world, or they're going to turn themselves into a pariah state. Uh, more so than they already have. And I don't think they're willing to deal with that. Not to mention, um, there's a million other concerns that come into this. Nuclear spillover and the fact that it could actually, even though I don't think they care much about damaging Ukraine itself, there is the fact that you know nuclear spillover, depending on the weather, could affect Russia itself. Um, there's questions on uh, whether or not this operation could be done successfully, uh, considering that hypersonic missiles have been shot down and we've seen Russian jets fail while in the air. They could very well order an attack like this and something could go wrong, which is also a risk that uh, the Putin regime would face in any operation like this. And we know 
from political reports that American and Chinese government officials had secret negotiations about how to stop Russian generals, not even the government, but the generals from carrying out any operation like this. There's a lot of motivators stopping the Russians from doing something like this. And that's why all the statements they give on nuclear weapons is we reserve the right to use nuclear weapons to protect our sovereign territory. But outside of that, they make no strong commitments. They've never drawn a red line at Crimea. People call it a red line, but that's the West calling it a red line. The Russians have never said, if you invade Crimea, we will nuke Ukraine. They'll never commit to anything like that because if they commit to something like that and then don't do it, they're going to look like fools. Well, so far, only Dmitry Medvedev has stated something like that. and uh, But he, I think, looks like a fool all the time and doesn't really care about that anyway. So... That, that's a, that's a thing. Medvedev is a is a is a drunkard, uh, and also nobody respects him. And there's a lot of theorizing that he specifically makes himself look like a fool to show Putin that he will not threaten his regime. And that's another element that people don't think about. If there is any security crisis that could cause a coup in Russia, there's not many. Vladimir Putin has a very strong stranglehold in the country, but Putin is terrified of the military. Part of the reason why Wagner is able to behave the way it is is because Wagner is seen as a chess piece against the military, something that scuffles with the military, makes the military look bad through its public statements, and allows there to be too much infighting between Wagner and the military to, that the military itself could never even think about overthrowing Putin. The military officials like Shoigu could never think about stabbing Putin in the back. Uh, that's part of the reason why Wagner exists and it has been given so much leeway in how it talks about the Russian defense industry and the Russian Ministry of Defense. If he's so scared of a coup and one of the main scenarios he's scared of is a brave, patriotic, kind of like uh, almost Zhukov-esque figure rising out of the ranks of the military and challenging his rule, the last thing he wants to do is start a, a nuclear operation. Uh, definitely, if, the, if what we've heard about the Chinese negotiations with American officials to stop these Russian generals through Chinese communications is true, if, if he wanted to give them an opportunity, uh, one of the few opportunities that could probably convince a lot of people in Russia that Putin has to go is if he was to push the button on blowing up the world. Well, to kind of wrap this up, uh, my personal belief is that uh, Russia in itself is uh, the world's last colonial empire, except it's land-based, not sea-based, like every other empire was. Because if you look at, for example, where the Russians live, and you can see the clear difference, like clear metropolis, which is Moscow, and to an extent, St. Petersburg, and then everywhere else in Russia, and how they live, and how they're being exploited, and where, you know, regions where ethnic Russians are barely 10% of the population. I do believe the regions are going to split up, and we're going to see a lot of infighting there. And uh, first one to go, by the way, is going to be Chechnya. With, it's um, our great friend of the show, the greatest Dondon idiot of them all, Ramzan Kadyrov, because he's a total... I don't know, such a piece of work that I can't even explain. Some people think that you have to be a genius to get into political power. There are some people who are in power because they're stupid. And Razman Kadyrov is one of those people. He's because he's seen as somebody who could not exist or hold his power without Putin because he's too incompetent and does not have enough support locally. Yeah, but my general question here was, what do you think uh, the end of the war is going to look like? What's your real? Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. The, yeah, I know. I know, but... He, Hard hitting questions. I know. Like, when I, I'm asked this question all the time, and like, yeah, me too. I don't have a, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not gonna, you know, peer in and tell everybody. You know, what's gonna happen is that actually, uh, Belgorod is gonna be the new capital of the Ukrainian National Republic. No, I see there being a counteroffensive sometime this year. Um, whether it's gonna be sooner rather than later, I really don't know. Hopefully, it will be successful. 
And what I'd like to see is Ukraine uh, use the momentum from that counteroffensive to eventually liberate all of its territory. The war is not ending in 2023. I'm not even sure if the war is going to end in 2024. None of us really know what's going to happen in the near future because this war is starting to see both sides dig in for the long haul. And so this war could be over next year. It could, by some miracle, be over late this year. I really heavily doubt it. But we don't know exactly when this war is going to end. And I think a lot of people searching for that timetable where you can say, okay, guys, this is where the war is going to end. Like, nobody can do that. And anybody telling you they know exactly when this war is going to end is a liar. And anybody telling you, and this is something I'd like to stress because I assume your audience is very pro-Ukrainian, Russian victory uh, is, is is impossible as in the idea of them holding on to what they've had. Not their original victory. Their original victory is that they cannot take over all of Ukraine. They cannot even, in my opinion, take over all of the Donbass. Now, the best thing that they can achieve close to victory, and, and Prigozhin was pretty open about this, is just holding on to what they have. That is their, that is their next objective. Nobody should be saying that the Ukrainian victory is guaranteed. The Ukrainian victory is still very much in the air. There's a million things that could happen in the United States politically that could mean Western support could drop. There's a million things that could happen that could mean committed equipment that we've sent over might be blocked, even though hopefully that isn't going to happen and most likely that isn't going to happen. Definitely since the Ukrainians are already planning on those future weapon shipments to support future offensives after the 2023 spring counteroffensive that we've all been waiting for. Anybody telling you that this that any outcome is particularly guaranteed in this war at this point is lying to you. Uh, this was said to me recently by somebody I interviewed in the Kharkiv Oblast, somebody who's been fighting Bakhmut, fighting Russian Wagner group in Bakhmut. And a lot of the stuff that's put out by both the Russians and the Ukrainian governments are meant to rally, of course, the civilian population. This war has not been won by the Russians. This war has not been won by the Ukrainians. It's very much still in the air. Uh, it's the Russians' war to lose, as Peter Zihan said. And I really hope that the Western support for Ukraine sustains because Ukraine right now has the best chance that it will ever have at true liberation from Russian colonialism and occupation. And I don't believe they're going to get another chance like this uh, during my lifetime. And so I really think we need to continue to support them. We need to continue to aid them to make their liberation happen because liberation is not given, it is taken. Well, those are those are very meaningful words, and I really want to thank you for coming on to my show and and talking about them. And I hope that you know, hey, maybe maybe someone is going to come over from your show and listen to this because again, I'm I'm going to continue talking about and mentioning exactly what the Russian propaganda is saying, and hopefully more Americans listen to this and like more people in Western Europe understand why this war really really matters for whether or not we were going to allow mad dictators to achieve their goals or you know some the world's going to change for a bit better. So thank you, Dylan, for, for being on. And uh, if you have any last words to my audience and where can they find you if they, well, everyone probably watches you already, but you know, just in case, where can they find you? And, and- <laughs> I, w- I wish, man, I wish everybody watched me already. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, for last words, I think I, I think I wrapped up uh, pretty nicely on my last statement. So I'll just say you can find me at Dylan Burns TV on my main channel on YouTube. That's where I post my journalistic videos, my content. I do also write articles, and I'm going to be writing more articles in the near future for New Voice of Ukraine um, uh, and some other publications as well. I already wrote an article last year for Offbeat Research. I'm going to be doing more stuff for them as well. Um, you can find my live stream content, Dylan Burns Live, which is my second channel. And um, I hope you guys follow me on Twitter, which is where I post my best uh, ship posting on Dylan Burns 1776. We definitely are going to do that. Okay. Follow me on Instagram. I got to plug that more. Don't burn TV on Instagram. Okay. I'm done. <laughs>
Nice to see you. And uh, again, до свидания, товарищи. And always remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.